Welcome to episode seven of my new podcast, Why Didn't Anyone Tell Me This? With my guests, we are discussing health issues, questions you may have, and debunking some of the myths around our health. So in this episode, it's a great pleasure to be discussing things with Professor Max Brandstrom, and the title is Transplanting Wombs. So Mats is an internationally renowned specialist in reproductive medicine and fertility. He has extensive expertise in women's health, particularly infertility and IVF treatments, as well as medical research. His passion for improving women's health outcomes has led him to become one of the leading experts in this field. Through his research, teaching and activism, he hopes to improve care for women around the world. So hi, Mats. Hi. So I would love to start. Nice to be here. <laughs> I would love to start by hearing a bit about your career. Well, yes. Uh, thank you, uh, Joyce. And it's nice to be here with you and uh, to meet you again. So I'm an MD, PhD, an MD. So I have a medical degree first. And after medical school, uh, for which in Sweden is five years, I did a PhD in reproductive physiology. That meant that I was working on uh, in animal models on the physiology of the ovary. So then I started to learn research. And after that, I went back uh, to do an internship. Uh, and uh, I combined this with doing a postdoc in Australia, also on, in research. And then I went back once again to the clinical and did my residency in uh, obstetrics gynecology. So I'm a specialist in obstetrics gynecology and uh, in the early phase of my career or my clinical career because I was late in my clinical career because I'd done so much research before I actually trained in gyne oncology surgery so that's cancer surgery for women and I did my first training in that in uh, Australia in 1998. And that's uh, when the idea of uh, womb transplantation or uterus transplantation came up to me. And I think Joyce will ask me later about uh, what happened. And then uh, during the last uh, 25 years, I've been a professor in uh, obstetrics and gynecology here at Salgenska Academy, University of Gothenburg doing the usual course that is combining research with teaching and with clinical activities. Uh, and my clinical activities uh, used to be gyne-oncology surgery, cancer surgery, but it's now in IVF and reproductive medicine. So that was a short uh, summary of my career. That's amazing. You've covered so many different areas in your career. And I wanted to to talk about that, about your passion for improving women's health outcomes. What do you think have been the main hurdles and where do we still need to improve women's health? I think uh, women's health uh, to be, has to be improved all over because uh, first, I think, at least in Sweden and in many uh, uh, countries worldwide, it has been an emphasis on, on uh, uh, men's health. A lot of studies are done on men's and it's a lot uh, uh, easier to get funding for uh, diseases uh, and so on, which are common among men. So 
concerning uh, my first clinical interest, which was gynae oncology, uh, I know that at least uh, we are now putting a lot more effort in uh, to uh, finding uh, better cures for uh, for uh, the common female cancer, but possibly is uh, to detect some of the cancers earlier. So if we look at the female cancers, the most common is endometrial cancer or uterine cancer, which usually uh, uh, is detected early on because you get a uh, symptom as a postpartum bleeding. But the big killer of uh, uh, gynec cancers among women is ovarian cancer because that is growing inside your abdomen and the woman will get the symptoms really late. Today, we are doing a lot of research on finding biomarkers or screening programs to find the cancer earlier. So I think that is one big area. I also think another area is uh, you no know, more personalized uh, medicine, that is to see what in, uh, in uh, menopausal uh, treatment with hormones to see what is actually suiting each woman possibly because you cannot treat every woman the same. And then of course the third issue about is the fertility issue. We know that there is an increased rate of infertility among couples and among females uh, and the main reason is actually because the age of the woman to get the first baby is increasing. So I think that those are three main areas, cancer, menopausal, and not only uh, to get uh, treatment by the hormones, but also in the menopause to protect uh, the woman uh, against diseases which can come when you get older. And then of course, uh, infertility. So thank you for mentioning infertility. You, you've done a lot of work on this. So how do you feel the current situation around infertility and IVF and, and where the future might lead us? So I think, uh, I mean, a lot has happened in infertility. We have to realize uh, that the first IVF baby was uh, born in 1978. Uh, and at that moment, uh, uh, we didn't have a treatment for male infertility, but now we have the ICSI, which can combine with IVF. So we a lot has happened, but I think it can be better. Concerning the standard IVF treatment, I think it's possible, the big... Uh, big uh, steps forward will be possibly to uh, know more about the endometrium, possibly to <clears throat> modify the endometrium. So the implantation when the, uh, when the embryo is attaching to the and growing in, on the, in the uterus gets better and more, we know better when to put an embryo back and we possibly can get also treatments to increase the implantation. I think that is one area. Uh, Concerning the embryo, which is the second part, which is important in IVF, I think uh, the problem is uh, aging, you uh, oocytes uh, giving rise to embryos and poor quality of the embryos because of the age oocytes. So I th there are certain ways of possibly rejuvenating oocytes or create uh, oocytes from somatic cells. 
which has been done somatic cells that is for example skin cells and so on that has been done in animals and i think when these technologies will come into uh, uh, into the human use the woman does not have to fight so much against her biological clock as they have to do today uh yes yeah, so i i think um i think that the future of things like making eggs from stem cells will, will certainly be something that we'll head to um in the short term before that happens what do you think about egg freezing so you know when when you and i started in this we couldn't freeze eggs and now we have the technology to successfully freeze the egg and as you say women are having children later do you do you think um yeah, so, I mean, uh... yeah do you think it will become more normal um or you know younger younger girls will soon after they they've qualified with their degree will will head off and, and freeze their eggs. Where do you think that might take us? I see that in, in, in the clinic. Uh, I was actually working in a private IVF clinic. We started with egg freezing, elective egg freezing or social egg freezing, as we call it, in 2011. And at, at that time, uh, the women who came in to do this, they were 38, 39 and 40 years of age. And that is actually too old to do this because the quality of the oocyte is uh, not good enough. Today, there's been a lot written in the press in Sweden about that. There's been some celebrities uh, doing egg freezing. And today we see that the age when the woman comes is about 33 to 36 years and uh, it's getting more and more popular. So I think this will actually uh, increase uh, but of course, in Sweden and in many countries, this is not uh, supported by the public health system. So the patient have to uh, carry the cost themselves, not only for the IVF clinic cost, but also for the drugs. So, so it's a costly procedure, uh, but I think it will um, the use of this will increase. Uh, the more it's written about it, the more. Uh, uh, TV and so on shows about, I think it's getting get more and more popular. And we also see that it's not only the patients come themselves, they sometimes they come with their parents because the parents think this is a good investment for them to be likely to have grandchildren and so on. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard that as well. And some of, some of my friends who are gynecologists have taken their, their daughters themselves because they're thinking about their grandchildren. Yeah. I'd like to ask you now more about your pioneering work on womb transplant. So I've, I've heard you talk about this several times and I've been so fascinated by your presentations. So can, can you start by telling us about what led you to start working on this and tell us a little bit about, about how that actually happens? Yeah. So I think the start is actually interesting. It was by coincidence. As I said, I was working in Australia in 1998. Uh, I was uh, then training in gynecology, uh, gyne which is cancer surgery. And uh, after I had become independent surgeon, I was going to operate a young woman for cervical cancer. And that is the gynecological cancer, which also hits young women. She was 25 years of age. <clears throat> and I had to tell her, uh, we have to remove the uterus, but you can keep your ovaries, but of course you can never carry a pregnancy. And um, 
she said, well, is that a problem? Can't you transplant a uterus? My mother could uh, donate a uterus. And I was astonished. Uh, first, I'd never thought about the concept. I thought this was a, first I thought it was a little mad idea. I was also disappointed at myself because I thought I was an innovative person that I had never thought about the concept. It had never been in my mind. Uh, but this was 1998 and this was the year they did the first uh, hand transplant in France, that they did the first larynx transplant. So the concept of transplanting not only organs or tissues uh, to, to uh, for life-saving purposes, but for quality of life enhancing purpose was out there. So I think that may possibly uh, help the woman to give, give us the idea. What happened after some discussions with my colleagues is that I started to say, well, I, we should do a research project on this. You cannot jump from an ID to, to, to trials in the human. You have a, actually to test in animal models if this is working. So in 1999, I went home and then we started in small rodents in the mouse and the rat to do this. And then we went up in big animals. And we were able to get the first pregnancy in mice in 2002. And this made the headlines in the world because this was the first time uh, we could demonstrate that, that this was possible. And at that time, I would say, I thought, well, it would take a couple of more years, but it actually took us 13 years of research until we did the first uh, trial in the human, uh, which later was successful. Uh, and I think this, uh, the big achievement with our, my, my team's uterus transplantation project is not only the very difficult surgery or the research, it's actually also to create a team because for several years, we were the same team that operated the large animals that later operated the humans. So we had trained for many, many years. Yeah. And how how do you actually do it? What do you need to do to do this? Can you tell our so, listeners what it involves? Yeah. Yeah, so what, what you do is, is, I mean, you have to have a recipient and the recipients, uh, the one who's going to get the womb is usually women born without a uterus. It's called a Rokitansky syndrome or MRKH syndrome. That is one in about 5,000 women born without this. Or women that have lost the uterus at a young age, like cervical cancer. So the recipient will get the uterus. And if you use a live donor concept, that means uh, like a kidney donor, there should be usually a close relative or a family friend donating the uterus. So we said, well, the mother, if she's not too old, would be a perfect donor. She would be motivated. And we know that the uterus would work because she had carried a pregnancy before. And then what you do is that when you screen them psychologically with lab tech techniques and with imaging, and then uh, you do the surgery on the donor and hysterectomy, but it's a, a very complicated hysterectomy. An ordinary hysterectomy to take a uterus out for myoma takes 45 minutes, but this takes 10 hours. And that is because you have to have very long vas vascular pedicles of arteries and veins, and these vessels are very, very thin. So 10 hours of surgery to get the uterus out. And when you are 
have the uterus out on the back table, you flush it and you cool it down and then you start with the recipient surgery where you actually put the vessels on top of the vessels uh, to, uh, to, the, to the pelvis and then you connect the vagina. And that is a four to five hour surgical procedure. So that is actually an easier procedure. You can also do this as a deceased donor procedure where you would get the uterus from a multi-organ donor. Then you would not have the long and risky surgery. And this multi-organ donor will also usually donate kidneys, liver, heart and uh, lungs. So is this more complicated than doing something like a heart transplant? Yeah, heart transplant is possibly the easy, one of the easiest transplants uh, because uh, you open uh, the th thorax and you have very good access and it's very big vessels, you anastomose. This is, you work down like in a narrow pelvis or a funnel and the vessels are extremely small. So we work with transplant surgeons and they say this is... Uh, the most difficult live donor uh, transplantation uh, as can be done. And then you can compare with the uh, liver, renal or lung transplants, which can be done uh, with a live donor also. So you must be working through the night then if you've got 10 hours. To yeah, usually we, usually we start like six or seven o'clock in the morning and we end at midnight. Uh, but the, the thing is that we uh, we do this in in a, with an extremely motivated team, and it's very challenging and exciting surgery. So we don't get tired; we just go on and go on, and we love love to do this. And what we do now is we don't only work in Sweden; we also help other centers around the world to start programs, and then we come to teach them the procedure. So we just came back from Australia where we did a couple of transplants in early 2023. How, ma how many have you done in total now? Our team has done uh, 32. And in the total in the world, I think it's more than 90 procedures done. And so the women are doing this because they obviously want to have a baby. Um, how many babies have been born? Uh, uh, in Sweden, we have 12 babies born, we have five ongoing pregnancies, and I think worldwide there are more than 50 babies born. So it has proven in many centers to be a very effective treatment. Uh, so possibly 85% of those with a good graft will get a baby. So it's very effective, but of course it's a very uh, large and complex uh, infertility procedure. And um, t tell us about the delivery. I've heard you talk about this. So when it comes to delivery, obviously you have to be a lot more careful here than with someone who's got pregnant in a in their own womb. Yeah, with the delivery, we do that by cesarean section because we have done, done a lot of anastomosis of, of uh, uh, the uterus and it will possibly not uh, be good to go through labor. And otherwise, the C-section would be similar as, as an ordinary C-section. If they only want one, ba one baby, we will take the uterus away at the time of C-section or shortly after. If they want to go for a second baby, which they can do, then we let the uterus stay in place. Uh, 
concerning the pregnancy, the patient will feel less of contractions and, and, and less of, uh, of pain if they go into pre-labor. And that is because the uterus is, doesn't have the nerve connections. And have you had any women that have had a second pregnancy? Yeah, we have had uh, three women in Sweden having two babies and uh, we have two ongoing pregnancies for a second baby. And in Sweden we say maximum two babies because you should not keep the graft for more than five or six years because the drugs you have to take to prevent uh, in a rejection can have a potential uh, toxic effect on the, on the kidneys if you have them for a long time. It, it is. I, I just think it's amazing. It always um, I find it so interesting hearing you talk about that because it's, you know, something that we've been waiting for for years and your team have done so much work on leading this globally. You know, I really commend you. And I, I know there's some criticism and people say, you know, lots, lots of lots of things about it. What, what are the main criticisms that you've had? I mean, the main question is, is we have surrogacy. <laughs> Do we need uterus transplantation? And my answer to this is that surrogacy is not allowed in most parts of the world. It would never been accepted in some big religions like the Islamic religion. Uh, it's not allowed in Sweden. Uh, and we know from, <clears throat> because it's, uh, surrogacy is practiced by Swedish women. So <clears throat> we have done surveys in Sweden and that has also been done in Japan and other studies. If a woman without a uterus, if she could choose between uterus transplantation and uh, surrogacy, what would she, would she choose? And most would prefer uh, uh, uterus transplantation. Even if it's a risky procedure, I think they also want to experience the pregnancy and the bonding between the mother and the fetus and the fetus and the mother during pregnancy. Yeah, no, I but I think it's it's not it's not going to be either surrogacy or uterus transplantation. I think they will complement each other. Some people will be suitable for surrogacy. Some will be suitable for uterus transplantation. So, talking about surrogacy, we we see a growing number of celebrities in the media who are having surrogacy and. It's it's obviously their story, and it's up to them if they tell us their whole reproductive journey. Um, but some of them have admitted that they don't need a surrogate; that they're doing it because they don't want to carry a baby for various reasons. So, and you're treating women who are going at great lengths to carry their own baby. How, how do you feel about this uh, growing use of surrogacy for maybe non-medical reasons? No, of course, I, I don't like it because I, th I think it's exploiting uh, women because they, the, the poor women uh, would in most cases do it, not altruistically, but for, for uh, money. And, uh, but I think the worst thing is with this that uh, people see these celebrities getting uh, kids when they're old and they don't know that there's oocyte donation or there's surrogates behind. And then they would think that it would be possible for them also and easy to get a baby when they're 40 plus or 45 plus. And they don't really actually realize uh, what is behind these celebrities' uh, childbirth 
uh, and of course uh, they don't realize how much how costly it is. Um, but I don't approve of that. And I, I think we need more information in the society about when is the peak of the reproductive age of the women and when is it declining and when should you start a family if you should get your one or two or three children. And, and of course, if you by natural way will get five, if you want three children in, uh, there have been research on that, you possibly should start at least when you're 29, 30 to have a good chance of that. And I don't think people realize that. And I think part of they not realizing that is that they see these celebrities getting uh, children at old age. Yeah, I, to I totally agree. My main research now is all about reproductive health education. And I think the problem with the celebrities is that it is really misleading people to believe that they can yeah. easily have children in their 50s. And it's really, really, as you say, it's hugely expensive. And we've got other things going on, such as uh, egg donation. Um, so staying on the wombs. So um, another technology that people like to talk about is artificial wombs. And will we will we have the possibility that women don't need to carry a child at all? That we'll we'll enter Aldous, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, which the book he wrote almost a hundred years ago. Um, where nobody had a baby the way we're doing it now. Um, no one would need a womb transplant. We would just all do this in the lab. The embryologist will choose which embryo becomes which sort of person. And there's no family anymore. There's no pregnancy. And everything happens uh, in, in a much more clinical way. Um, wh where do you think we might be in maybe 50 years? I don't think you and I will be here to view it. But <laughs> uh, what do you think it'll be like to have a family uh, in the future. Yeah, concerning this artificial wombs, it's called ectogenesis. Uh, there are research doing that, but uh, and what has happened is, of course, we have uh, actually decreased the span of when an embryo or a fetus has to be in the in the natural womb because now we can put them inside the womb after seven days as a blastocyst, and you can possibly deliver at week 22 and so on. And there are ongoing research in animals to possibly decrease that you could have an artificial womb, not for the first part of pregnancy, but uh, actually to shorten this time. So in a human case, possibly that you could deliver into an artificial womb at uh, week 20, and the pregnancy is 40 weeks, and then you can the fetus can actually grow inside this artificial uh, artificial milieu for some time. I think what's going to be problematic is the first 10 weeks of pregnancy because there's so many genetic uh, things happening in the fetus and the organs are forming during this time. And I think it would be very difficult to mimic the physiological situation as we have in the womb. Uh, but you should never say no, uh, but I think it will take a long time and uh, we, we have to, of course, to do a lot of research to know what is exactly happening in early pregnancy in the human during these early, very important first 10 weeks when all the organs are formed and so on. Um, 
So I think what will happen during the next uh, 20 or 40 years, 20 or 30 years is that we will in animal uh, models be able to decrease that time which is which is necessary to, to be in the womb and possibly we could uh, uh, actually adapt some of that to the human. Um, but there may, may be other ways, uh, perhaps you can uh, transplant a mod gene-modified human uterus into an animal and that animal can keep the human uterus and uh, uh, have the part of the pregnancy in that. That would be possible. There's also other possibilities. Yeah, wow, that's a, that's a really interesting concept. And, uh, and I totally agree with you. I, I think we never say never. Um, there's some things that you and I are involved with now that when we were much younger was science fiction and and here we are doing these things now so i think it's um it's going to be interesting to see where this research goes for sure so um i ask all my guests have you heard people say why didn't anyone tell me this um especially around women's health so what if you have heard that what sort of things did they ask No, I haven't thought about that question. <laughs> Take the question once again. Yeah. Have you heard have you people heard, say, why, why, why didn't anyone tell me this? I think I, I in this, uh, in this, I think, I, I think uh, I can relate to mostly my own product with the uterus transplantation. And I, I would say, why didn't anyone uh presented this concept to me before I heard this from the patient and so on. And, and uh, of course, many people would say it would be impossible. But then I say, well, uh, if it's, people think it's impossible, I think you have to test in, with research if it's possible or not. Um, I think that is what I can relate to, to mostly. But I, I mean, I think this is what we discussed before about uh, creating uh, uh, germ cells, sperms and oocytes from somatic cells and so on. And when I first heard about that uh, happening in the mice, I, I was also uh, uh, surprised that I never thought about that concept before. So I think what we have to be is that we should not be surprised about new ideas uh, coming up, which we never heard about or which we never thought about. Uh, but we have to, as researchers in the field, we have to make sure that they are tested in appropriate models before we introduce these ideas into the human, because we have actually to see that they are safe. Thank you. Um, I, I find I'm spending a lot of my time, which I get a bit frustrated, on debunking myths. So I think with social media, this has become much more of a problem that we get myths that are generated. So in, in your career in women's health, are there myths that you have come across that you feel we need to make clear that they are myths and not true? Yeah. I mean, I, th I think the most uh, common is that uh, that if you are uh, a long time on the oral contraceptive uh, pill, that it will, may take may be, be more difficult to uh, 
to get pregnant. That's uh, a myth that I hear from many pa patients. I also would re relate to a lot of uh, the ads on people. Uh, people uh, think that it will be beneficial when they do IVF. There could be nutritional things, it could be um, vitamins and so on. And that a lot and they've, of course, they have read about this in social media and in the papers. They've heard, they have friends that have tested this and they have got pregnant and so on. Uh, and uh, so, so, so I, I always, uh, when they ask about these things, I always say, well, you have to look at the science. What are the facts? What do we know? And uh, sometimes I, I tell the patients uh, if they want to take. Um, a nutritional agent and so on. Well, uh, you can take it. Possibly has it has no harm, but it will cost you a lot of money, and you have to. And we have no proof that it will be beneficial. I think you're totally right. I think the money. And of course, I can also I can I can also relate to myths when I was a cancer surgeon because when people get cancer, they uh, often look for explanations in their lives that they have done something wrong which has uh, caused the cancer and uh, of course everybody relates to smoking and smoking is not good but for instance smoking is a protecting factor against wearing cancer and so on so it's not only always that the bad guys are bad for that particular cancer i i agree about the monetization of of women's health there's every week i see another product that will help women in being healthy because it's just become a huge market now and and these lotions and potions and menopause things and fertility helps and aids you know it's it's a it's a growing list of uh money making campaigns to to i think mislead women in in many aspects so the last few yeah. questions I, I, can also, I can also say that uh, i mean what I see with the more modern women uh, to, uh, who seek infertility treatment, uh, um, so many people have these uh, monitoring apps of the menstruation and so on. And, and uh, of course, that is very good for the doctor to know exactly when they had menstruation and when they will have menstruations and so on. But I think sometimes the couple can be too locked in by these uh, monitoring apps instead of uh, and that may be stressful and that may be may harm them may cause them harm in the infertility situation uh, so i think the modern woman tends to rely too much on the apps i would say they're very uh, i think that's very common that that um, they actually dis design the life and their sex life uh, and so on uh, all by the apps and the, the periods when they can get pregnant and so on. But uh, sometimes it may be better just to relax and don't think about that and, and live natural. And there's more apps coming, <laughs> I can tell you. There's going to be apps for everything. <laughs> um, so you've had, a, you've had an amazing career where you've helped so many people. So what motivates you? I think, I mean, uh, I mean, it motivates me, of course, I'm, I'm a doctor and I like to help uh, uh, my patients. But of course, uh, what actually gives you the, uh, 
you, you, I think the feedback you get from the patients, uh, and that can be the same in cancer treatment as in infertility treatment, and the happiness you see, that gives me the motivation. And also, of course, I'm a father of five children. I know there's sometimes it's a lot of problems to have children also, but I, I also see the enjoyment it has given me. So I think that is why I'm very motivated to help women and also men uh, in, in uh, relationships to get their child. Because I know that actually mean, will mean and means so much to the, their quality of life. But the big day-to-day -day motivation and so on are the, the, uh, are the good uh, are the feedback from the patients. And of course, in this uterus transplantation situation, I get, um, I get uh, messages or greetings on, on emails, and especially when it's Christmas. And when I see that I've actually created a little family with this child in between, the mother and, and the father, that really makes me happy. That is the, the bi biggest reward I can get. That's really beautiful. Um, last couple of questions. What makes you happy and where is your happy place? I'm doing a lot of work about happiness. I'm hopefully writing a book about being happy when you're older. <laughs> so I'm asking everybody, what makes them happy and where's the happy place? My happiness is, is either in, on the sailing boat or uh, or in this uh, or cross country skiing uh, when I feel uh, close to nature and and, uh, and and when you get away a little from the ordinary setting. But of course, I can also be happy with just uh, be having a cup of coffee and uh, and. Uh, Doing the cross cross uh, work, uh, what what is it called cross work? No? Yep, crossword. Yep. And you do the yeah crossword, yeah, and so on. So the small things, but also all it's always like seeing uh, the kids uh, uh, being happy and doing well. That's happiness. Uh, I have uh, five kids, but not yet any grandchildren. So I think when I will get grandchildren, that will actually be a happiness to me also. Yeah. And, and it's quite interesting that almost all my guests have said something to do with water and lots to do with nature. Mm. Yeah, I think that really does. And the very final question. So we're we're of a certain age and we've got hopefully some wisdom. So if you could turn back time, what what advice would you give your younger self or maybe what would be the main advice you'd give your children about about life? Yeah, no, I, I talk to my children a lot, and and I said, uh, I mean, uh, go f when you when you decide what job you're going to go into or what kind of career if you're going to study this or this or having a practical work, don't go on tactics uh, and so on. go on your feelings because I think if you're passionate about your work, uh, you will get a happy, more happy person, and then in in, uh, at least if you do a research career or a doctor's career, uh, and that is uh, uh, that you should and, uh, that you should be open to suggestions. If people thinks that this or suggest this and this, you should have, treat it with an open mind and possibly evaluate yourself is, if this would be possible and so on to help a person. So. I also take my, uh, tell my kids, be open and take the opportunities when they're given to you. Uh, 
uh, and there will never be the right moment, the perfect moment for an opportunity, but it may be okay for this opportunity. Take it and explore it. That's that's really wonderful advice to everybody, to all of our listeners. So, Matt, I wanted to hugely thank you. We've covered lots of different topics, and I'm sure the listeners are going to be really fascinated by all of the work you've done. So thank you very much for coming on my podcast. Thank you, Joyce. Uh, 